If you've been journeying with us the past couple of weeks since the start of the year, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel, and now you see this, and you're like, wait a second, that's not Ezekiel, what's going on? Uh, we are, well, part of the plan here is that we, we started off with Ezekiel, I gave you a little bit of a, of a taste of what that prophet is going to be about, <laughs> a really big taste of all the things that came with Ezekiel, uh, and then we take this little break here for Lent. Uh, and focus our attentions more so on the cross and what's happening on Easter Sunday. And then after Easter Sunday is done, we'll pick Ezekiel back up and finish that, that out. And so this is your little break, a little breath of, of, well, Ezekiel's fresh air, but this is maybe get our heads out of the valley a little bit uh, with this uh, sermon series for the next uh, few weeks. Uh, in September, uh, many of you knew or whatever, but I went to, uh, I don't know if you knew or not, but I went to the beach in Florida, uh, and that is uh, where we're from, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, our kids um, just were so excited to go down to the beach and to be, uh, put the feet in the sand, put the feet in the water, and it was September, so it was still kind of warm, just everything was good. But if you don't know about Florida and, and the coastal regions down there, September is still a prime month for hurricanes and tropical systems, right? And so while we were there, we were okay. There was not a hurricane or tropical system that was coming down on where we were at. However, they were out there lurking in the Atlantic. And what happens is when you have these tropical systems, plural, in the Atlantic, even though there's no threat to land, it starts churning things up. And it starts mixing. I, the best I, I'm not a scientist in any way, shape, or form, but I play one on TV. But no, they, it, it mixes things on up. And what happens is you get a rip current warning. Have you ever heard that before, a rip current warning? Okay. And so those are very dangerous. And what happens is if you're not, you know, strong or if you're not really understanding what's going on, the water can bring you out and just keep on bringing you out to deeper, deeper waters that you go, and it's kind of how you, you know, drown and things like that. So naturally, my children wanted to experience this phenomenon, right? And so here we are at the beach, and we're in the shallow parts, uh, so we're, I'm, I'm keeping it shallow, because I can feel it on my ankles. I can feel just the strength as the wave comes in and starts to bring out. I'm thinking, this is, this is pretty strong. So I'm holding on to their hands with dear life, trying to be the fun dad, doing all the things. Uh, but every now and then, a wave would come in, and it would knock us over, and, and I would tell them, okay, guys, stand up, stand up, because we're in shallow water. They can, they can stand up. One of my children, I'm sure you all know who, one of them, and I probably shared the story with some of you already, one of them was, was not quite grasping the concept of the undertow, the rip current, and thought it was fun to have the water glide them out into the ocean. And so I had to explain to him, my little boy, Caleb, uh, no, no, you need, to, you need to get back up again, because this, this is going to bring you out. I called it the undertow. I mean, undertow, rip current, I think are two different things, but he didn't know that. But I just said the undertow. And I said, it'll suck you out, and it could kill you. I use those words, because lights were not clicking together here. And so I said, you need to get back up if we're going to do this. And so he seemed to grasp the severity of what I was saying to him. And then a few seconds later, as my back was turned or whatever it was, I look over, and there he is on his belly, just being taken out into the Atlantic Ocean. And instead of fear and trepidation that I thought I instilled in him was just this little boy face of glee and happiness as he's being sucked out to his doom, screaming, The Undertale! <laughs> he thought it was so much fun. All giggles and laughter. And I've even been at the beach, you know, any lifeguard would tell you with the rip current that if you are going to get sucked out to it, 
you are not to swim against it. In other words, if something is pulling you out, do not try to swim against this rip current because what's going to happen is you're going to lose your strength. And it's another quick way of drowning. Instead, what they tell you to do is follow along the steady, never-changing coastal line of the beach, which if you're on the coast, that goes for miles and miles and miles. It seems on to eternity, right? And they say to swim alongside that coast until you get out of the rip current's clutches. It's a simple instruction requiring simple trust. It doesn't seem logical. If something is pulling you one way, you want to go the opposite way. But the simple instruction is don't go opposite, go along with. And sometimes, most times, if not always, if we're being honest, our own muscle and our strength and our endurance is not sufficient to get us out of situations that this can metaphorically represent. This is the whole gospel in a nutshell right here. Sin continues to drag us out further and further away and deeper and deeper than where we ever want to go and further from our Father who is trying to hold on to our hands. And sometimes we greet this force of sin with glee and happiness only to find that it's our undoing. And yet the simple instruction remains. That doesn't always make sense. Go a different way, a new way. Follow the constant that is right alongside you until this thing no longer has a hold of you. That's the glory of Jesus. That's the glory of our Christ, whose way doesn't always make sense to us, but is constant and true and saves us. Our Lenten series, The Seven Signs, is going to focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. Everyone say glory. There you go. Now, don't you feel like you've been to church? So we're going to focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. If Ezekiel focuses on the glory of God, This Lenten series is going to focus on the glory of God, the Son, Jesus Christ. You see what I'm trying to do here now. And what is glory? Glory is for us to not only see with our eyes, but feel with our soul and our heart and our whole being, the awareness, the magnitude, the truth, the wonder of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, people say when you behold the glory of something, you feel its weight, And if you read my letter in the newsletter and and the annual report, I talked about becoming a father and feeling the weight of my child and how that really began to, in my heart, confirm to me that I am now a dad versus just seeing ultrasound pictures. We're going to get and feel the weight of Jesus to experience him truly in our heart. And in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs that he pulls out and says, here are the ways in which Jesus shows and demonstrates to them and to us the glory of his identity, of who he is, the one true Son of God, the Messiah that has been sent. Now, some may say that the Gospel of John only has six signs and not seven. Different commentators go different ways about the next, actually next week's sign of whether or not it's a sign or not. I chose to go along with the seven because I like seven. Seven's a good number. It's a number of completion. But let me tell you something. Jesus didn't do just six signs. He didn't do just seven signs. He did many signs. Because even though seven is our number of completion, Jesus was here to show abundance and time and time again of his eternal truth of the Messiah, the one true Son of God. Listen to what John says towards the end of his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, 
But these are written, the ones that he chose are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you can know the full weight of his glory and believe Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, not just this life, eternal life in his name. Amen? Amen. So let's dive into this. We're going to see the first of these recorded signs today that come in the Gospel of John and be reminded that our faith and belief in Jesus Christ is not going to come from our own heroic acts and feats of strength trying to swim against the current, but will only come from simple acts of faith and trust, being obedient to whatever He tells us to do. Today, my friends, the first sign is going to point that Jesus' glory is revealed through just simple acts of faith. Simple acts of faith. So let's get into this. Okay, so John's gospel. If you were to open up your Bibles to the gospel of John, we're going to actually look at John chapter 2. But before we get there, I'm going to get some context here. So if you bear with me, this is a little part of it more than what you bargained for, but you kind of need to understand what's going on. So in John's gospel at the start, John chapter 1, let's just call it the prologue of sorts, his introduction. This is a theological and Christological masterpiece. What does Christological mean? Meaning elevating the salvation, identity, and power of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 is a masterpiece. You ever get a chance to read through it on your own? Do so. Scholars and and, and non-scholars alike Go to John chapter 1 for a simple, succinct, yet profound way to explain the divinity and the messiahship of Jesus. It's wonderfully, beautifully written. Here are some key phrases to look at from the prologue of Jesus, about Jesus and John. All things were made through him, he says. In him, that's Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. True light was coming into the world, and the world was made through him, though the world knew him not. Anyone believing into Christ, into Jesus, Jesus gives them the right to become children of God. The Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us, the Word being Jesus Christ. Eugene Peterson in the message says, Jesus came into the neighborhood and set up his tent, set it up right there in and among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, and that he is full of grace and full of truth. Amen. But the prologue also communicated the why of Jesus as well. Those are all things that John lays down as, these are truth statements of what we now know about Jesus and what the rest of this gospel is going to prove. But in John chapter 1, he also gives the why. Why do we need Jesus in the first place? And he does that by talking about two people, John the Baptist and Moses. Right there in the beginning, as as the gospel writer John, don't get the Johns mixed up, the gospel writer of John, right as he's laying it all down, who Jesus is, he takes a moment and says, there was this other John, John the Baptist, right? And that John the Baptist was doing great things. But John the Baptist was just a heralder. He was just a witness of the true Messiah to come. He was just a witness of the true Messiah to come. So don't look to John the Baptist as a light. That's not where the light is at. 
And then the gospel writer also talks about Moses, that the law and everything that God handed down to us through Moses was given through Moses. And in some ways, great. Yay, thank you, God. However, the fullness of grace and truth came through Jesus. What is the why of Jesus? The gospel writer is setting up right here in the very beginning that the old way had its way and had its purpose. And they'll substitute John the Baptist out for any prophet, for any covenant head, David, Abraham, substitute all those names in there. All of them were great and they served their purpose, but they were just a witness. They were just a heralder of the thing to come of the sustaining, eternal, abundant Messiah to come. And that sets the backdrop up today. It sets us up that we are looking for the one, someone more abundant, someone with truth and grace in its fullness, the very remedy that we need to escape the undertow, whose way may not make logical sense, but running alongside us each and every way to follow him through simple acts of faith, so that we see his glory revealed. What is this first sign that Jesus did to communicate this truth? Open up to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to go to a wedding, everybody. How many people have read this story before? Yes, it's one that's often cited for different reasons, but let's look at what happens here. John chapter 2, some of the disciples have been called already, and now they are going to this wedding. John chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And if you're thinking, wow, that sounds like real religious language on the third day, it is. He's using that on purpose. He is trying to pair with us and pair with the readers and the, and the folks that are listening to this to the third day of the church, the resurrection. On the third day, he rose again. That what we're about to see here, see through that lens of that joy and that fullness. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding along with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, which holding 20 or 30 gallons, large, very, very large. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the head waiter. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now have been coming wine, and didn't know where it came from, although the servants had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine comes out. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. So The gospel writer says this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested, which means make known, so that we can see and behold his glory and his disciples believed into him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. All right, so let's kind of dice this up. What is this first sign? Some interesting things to point out. First off, we're at a wedding. Now, if any of you have, have done a Bible study on this before, typically we take a moment to explain the importance of weddings here now in this kind of first century era uh, of Palestine, of what, what weddings were like. See, weddings were a big deal. It was a big party. Not unheard of that the whole village and, and the folks would all be invited there together. Look, Jesus and his disciples are going. We can assume that there's probably some sort of relationship or at least some sort of, uh, of connection between Jesus' mother and this family, hence her urgency of, son, there is, there's no wine here, they're, they're, they're out of wine. And you may be thinking, why is that a big deal? They're out of wine. You know, drink it until it's gone. With our weddings, that's the way it was. There's a limit to that. We're not funding this whole big slush party here for you all kind of thing, right? And so you think, no harm, no foul. But then, no, 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 no. See, that was an act of, um, if I could create a word, dishospitality, okay? That was a diss on everybody else if you were the, the host of this wedding and you ran out of refreshments, and particularly the wine. And so not only was it just bad news, it was shameful. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is concerned of the shame, the public ridicule that is going to come upon this family because they ran out of wine. And then so she comes to her son, and she has this weird interaction. Let's just call it what it is. It's a weird interaction. It's not an interaction that we would probably have with our parents. If my mom came up to me and said, I need you to do something, and I said, woman, what's this have to do with me? I wouldn't be able to eat the steak and shrimp dinner that was coming with the wedding, right? You know? You get it? Because my teeth would fall out. That's funny, everybody. Okay, so, but this interaction between the mom and Jesus, Jesus' mom, is kind of weird. He says woman instead of mother. Now, if we look at that through our lens like I just did, it doesn't make sense. Woman at that point can, and in this case, I think it's also being used as a term of endearment. Jesus uses that language again at the cross, if you remember, when he says to the disciple, this is now, this is now your mom, he uses the word woman. Can also be, in a very subtle but clear way to Mary, I am your son, but I am also your Lord. Right? There's this, and we're at the start of his ministry, and so we're maybe seeing this kind of cleaving that is here. It doesn't say this in the text, so we're just kind of trying to figure out why this weird interaction. But Mary is concerned for the shame that's going to befall on the family. She urges her son to believe. So we have to have a question here. Is, does Mary know? Does Mary know what Jesus is capable of? That Jesus is this divine one? I mean, I would say... I think so, hence the angel visitation at Christmas time that said, hey, you're going to have a baby by, by the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking she can put two and two together that this, this person is very, very special. And so maybe she's coming to him to say, can you do something? Because she thinks this is a very simple thing for him to do. This is going to be very, very simple. He can do some sort of something or other to get the wine here to save this family from their public ridicule and their shame. I think we can think that and keep with the integrity of Scripture. But Jesus' reply to her is a little confusing as well. He communicates a, a broader truth here, and for, the, for his mother, for his disciples, for all of us. The shame of running out of wine is significant, but I think the broader truth here is that the shame of never being right with God, the shame of being separated from God because of our sin and sinfulness, 
is much, much greater. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, I'm thinking he is saying and communicating my hour to actually rid the true shame that this family is going to experience and that we all experience has not yet come. I am not ready to do that just yet. Now, what happens next internally inside Mary is also a ministry because it just says, you do this. He says, what does this have to me, done to me? My hour's not yet come. So then I can only imagine she turns from him, looks to the servants and says, do whatever he says for you to do. Whatever he says, you do it. And then we get the rest of the story. The waitstaff fills the jars with water. They fill it to the brim. He tells them to draw from the jars, take it to the head waiter. The head waiter drinks from it and proclaims, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. This is usually served first, but you waited until the end. Everyone is happy. Waitstaff is shocked. And at the end, disciples believe in Jesus. So what happened here? Is Jesus doing party favors? Is he showing off his powers like he's some magician? Obviously not. On the surface, it can look like that. There was a crisis. Jesus says some things that no one understands, and he changes the water to the wine, and everyone parties on. And now and forevermore, people use this passage of the, of the water to wine, wedding at Cana, to say that Jesus loves to party, loves to get down, and that he loves wine. Look, he made water to wine, so surely I can drink as much wine as I want. Pour me a glass. How many of you have ever heard someone reference this passage for those reasons? Raise your hand. Only? A little? Oh, come on. I've constantly heard that. But maybe in my college days, I was hanging out in wrong circles. <laughs> but these signs that Jesus does are so that we would believe and have life in his name. Believe in the one true Christ. To know his glory feel his weight. So the significance of this is found in the head waiter's comments. There's a lot, but I'm going to go into the head waiter's comments. Typically, he says, you serve the good wine first. And then when everyone is feeling good and happy, the cheap stuff comes out so that they don't notice that what they're drinking is cheap. This is a sign and a foretaste of the new covenant in comparison to the old. The jars representing the old Jewish purification system of trying to be clean, the wine that they're drinking, okay, that they think is good and is the good stuff already, that wine runs out, right? It doesn't sustain. It doesn't have the sustainability to last the party. And shame is looming. So Jesus uses the hour not to rid them of the real shame, in not to fully fulfill the old covenant and inaugurate the new, which happens on the cross, but to demonstrate that the old covenant, the old way, can no longer sustain them. You thought this was good wine. It is not. It never had the power to sustain and free you, and it was never designed to do that. See, that's the real kick in the pants for folks who are, who are struggling as we go through the New Testament with the old and new covenant. Because everything that they've been told is that the old covenant is the thing. Follow the law and you will be blessed. That's what they've been told. But they miss the inner teachings of this. They miss that the old covenant was set up to teach them and show them and create in them a longingness for the true Messiah Christ. And all the prophets that were raised up continued to call out to them that reason and that purpose. And yet they missed it. 
So now here at this wedding, we have a metaphor of sorts. We have a demonstration, much like how Ezekiel was to lay on his side, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, and give them a sign, an illustration. Jesus is using this wedding as a sign and an illustration of who he truly is, and that your system of old wine drinking that you think is good does not have the power to sustain. It is limited. It is not abundant. And so he has them, what? Fill up those jars. Fill them up. Now, it says here that he only instructs them to fill them and that the servants fill it all the way up to the brim. Don't know why the servants did that. If you watch The Chosen, it has, they interpret it a little bit differently. They have it, Jesus saying to them, fill it all the way to the brim. But in the text here, he just says, just fill it. They fill it to the brim. I don't, whether out of their exuberance or their enthusiasm, they do. And so he tells them to do this and to fill it all the way up and then tells them to draw water and then to take the water and have, him, have the headmaster taste it. Fill Draw, take, and taste. Look at this. These are simple actions of people doing whatever it is he told them to do. That's the power of Mary's statement. Whatever he, whatever he says to do, do it. And that's a message for all of us too. Right? When our backs are against the wall, when the wine has run out in our lives, whatever that wine may be, to do just simply whatever he tells you to do to swim alongside the shore knowing that he has constantly been there until we get out of whatever rip current is pulling us back out. And I love that this miracle isn't mass conversions. It's not the feeding of the 5,000, which we will talk about, but it's not that, right? It's at a wedding in a little bitty town. And the only people who know that something special has happened is the waitstaff and Jesus' disciples. And John reserves that true belief only came upon the disciples. And so this instance here really is the power for the disciples to reconfirm their belief. There's obviously some sort of belief there because they're following him. They're considered disciples, right? But here it is revealing this glory of who he is. John says he manifested his glory and the disciples believed. It speaks to how often we who follow Jesus need that constant and continual reminder of his glory of who he is. Because rip currents in life are all out there. Always be you a disciple or not. And that we need to remember that the constant of Jesus, the new wine, the abundant wine, the wine that doesn't run out, the greatest stuff is right there, right alongside us. He tells them to fill, draw, take, and taste. Can that be instructions for all of us now in our faith and walk with Christ? To fill our hearts with the true and living water of Christ, drawing only from Him as the source and power of redemption. And drink from him who sustains true life and removes all shame. His glory revealed through simple acts of faith. Sometimes whatever he tells us to do won't always make sense. Whatever won't always seem possible. Whatever won't always follow the historical pattern we're used to. And it won't always be human tested and approved. But whatever Christ tells us, we do it. 
He's not some ordinary rabbi with extraordinary talents and abilities. He's not some magician or a trickster. He's not some drunkard who loves wine and loves to party. And therefore, because he's cool like that, worthy of my belief. That's not him. He is the one true Son of God. And these signs are being performed so that we believe and have life in his name, whose glory has been made known. We have seen the glory of the one true Son of the Father. Therefore, whatever he tells us to do, we do it. And in those simple acts of faith and trust, his glory continues to be revealed. Our hearts continue to be strengthened. And we swim along the constant presence of Christ with glee and happiness and escape the pool of the undertow. Won't you fill, draw, take, and taste? The Lord is good, that Jesus is the true Son of God, the Messiah, and in Him, in His name, we have life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this first sign of many signs that John says that you have done, that you don't, you don't just come and, and, and hope that we figure it out. You lay it out and lay it on pretty thick so that there isn't a question so that those who believe in you, whose hearts are inclined to you, oh, that we would respond, that we would hear you call our name as children of God and put our full belief and faith into you and be reminded that it's not on any heroic acts that we can do. It's just to simply fill, draw, taste, and drink, to fill our hearts up, to drink from your well, and to taste that you are good. Oh, Lord. May we not get it mixed up. May we not get it confused that we are the lords of our life instead of you. And therefore swimming against the current until our strength runs out and we are consumed. But to rather go a new way along the constant presence of you, O Lord, who bids us home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has come from the Father to reveal the Father and make all things known. My friends, you have seen and beheld his glory if you profess the faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord. Therefore, go out and share it. Sing glory to the Lord, to all who will hear it, so that they too have their eyes open and feel the weight of the one true Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. Have a great day, everybody.